Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe, and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I envision a world where every B2B SaaS startup succeeds because they're creating software that customers would miss if they were gone. And here's why. Research consistently shows that 90% of all startups fail, and that's bad. What's worse, however, is that 75% of SaaS scale-ups fail, companies that are supposed to have product market fit. Far too few scale-ups create the traction they aspire for and fail for the wrong reasons. And I believe this should stop, and hence I created my business. And the goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. First, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential that we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. Secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what it requires to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on my podcast this week is Alex Levine, co-founder and CEO of Regal. At bigger companies, you're taught that you're taught the wrong thing. You're taught that, you know, the more people work for you, the more important you are. The more your world is like important, the more important you are. I think that results in bad outcomes for companies. What we try to teach people is actually the most valuable people in the company are those that can make themselves completely redundant. This is Alex. He's a tech entrepreneur on a mission. He was a product manager at Personal and Thomson Reuters, and then joined Handy, which was later acquired by Engie, to lead growth and marketing. Alex grew up in New York and received his BA from Harvard. While at Engie, he successfully drove top of the funnel growth. But even after rolling out website optimization and email and SMS remarketing, only four out of 100 customers would convert. Surprisingly, he found that if they would call 96% of the abandoned customers and got them on the phone, they loved the attention and converted at double the rate. In search for technology to scale this, he found only solutions around a basic, one-size-fits-all, call more and call faster strategy, resulting in declining answer rates and terrible customer experience. Solving this problem sparked the idea to co-found Regal in October 2020 with Rebecca Green, which is the CTO. They believe in the power of personal touch in an increasingly digital world. And in the meantime, they've built an outbound phone and SMS sales solution it helps many fast-growing B2C brands achieve their growth goals way faster. And their mission? Enable B2C brands to treat their customers like royalties. And that inspired me. And hence I invited Alex to my podcast. We explore what's broken in the way we sell online to B2C customers. Alex explains how they help customers 3.5x their answer rate and make that exceed their revenue via the website. He shares his big lessons learned on how they grew rapidly to 3 million run rate in less than two years without a sales team or marketing team. Last but not least, he talks about why we should be prioritizing creating wealth for everyone in the company rather than glorifying raising money. And by listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, 
what you should be looking for in conversations about new products with customers. Secondly, that you don't have to have a huge engineering team to build products that drive revenue from the start. Thirdly, how to successfully grow your SaaS business faster with fewer people. And lastly, how to create a SaaS business that becomes critical infrastructure for your customers. Hi Alex, thank you for making the time available today and being the guest on the podcast. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I hear that a lot. Thanks for that. And I'm actually happy that you're here as well, because when I got approached to have you on the show, because this happens more and more these days, when I looked at your website, it was, yeah, this is, this is one of those cases, again, that I get inspired by. And as a consequence, I want to have those stories. So you started your company, Regal, in 2020, and I've seen pretty strong growth from it. This is also what I was interested to have you on the show. Before we start talking about what the company is all about and like what inspired you to start it, if you would define yourself in two or three words as an entrepreneur, what words would come out? Two or three words is a hard one. You know, I'd say I'm a builder for sure, you know, as I hope that, you know, I'm still a father and a husband. But yeah, those are probably the most exciting parts of my life. That's good that you bring it up because at the end, it's about the balance. And yeah, it says a lot about you already. And the builder part, yeah, of course. Otherwise, you wouldn't start a venture like this. But the balance part of being the father is definitely a very, very good one. So you started your business, Regal, in 2020. What was the problem that you saw that yeah, just couldn't live a day longer without a good solution for it? Yeah. So my co-founder, Rebecca, and I had an interesting set of experiences where we were working at a very large company that sold home services online called Angie. And they own Angie's List and Home Advisor and Handy and all these different brands. And our core thesis was that people didn't want to talk to human beings and they wanted to come online and be able to buy home services just online. And I think what we found at scale, we got to a very large scale. What we found is actually the conversion online was worse than the old school conversion offline. So when somebody would go offline and look for a fence installation, they actually had a better experience than when they came online and looked for a fence installation. And, you know, that not only is it bad, but it was kind of embarrassing when we found that out because we thought that we had built a better mousetrap. And so as we engaged in this and we tried a lot of different ways of getting customers to understand better the service and to convert at a higher rate, we found actually the most effective was to have a conversation with the customer. If we had a conversation with a high intent customer looking to build that fence, they converted at a much higher rate. Yeah. And in sort of exploring this, we ended up building a very large team who would intentionally call customers. So they come in, they look for the fence and they didn't buy. We call them and say, hi, you have a house. You know, do you want a fence? Tell me more. And it wasn't a hard sales motion. It was really there to help them disambiguate the complicated concepts and for us to emote with them and help them walk through this relatively complicated high consideration purchase. And as we got to scale, we realized that the sort of general narrative, the common narrative was that phone was dead, definitely sales was dead, and you should never talk to a customer. And so there was very little software built out in the B2C world for this kind of sales motion. We tried a lot of the B2B software, you know, things like Outreach and SalesLoft, but those were built around a very high-priced salesperson that was not actually doing that much time on the phone. And we tried a lot of tools that were built for customer service, but they were actually built to deflect you know, conversations, not have conversations. And we even tried tools that were built for cold calling which were largely built just to dial a lot of people as fast as you can, which is also not the goal. And so in the end, our metaphor was we wanted to be able to 
do for phone sales a similar thing to what customer engagement tools have done for email. We want to be able to reach you know the right customer at the right moment, you know, with the right message. And so we left to start Regal on the theory that there were going to be sort of all these businesses moving online that were more considered. So everything about your health, your wealth, your kids, your pets, you know, your house, your car, where it was not going to be the same e-commerce motion online with a photo and a price and a review. There was going to be a landing page, sure, but you were going to want to talk to somebody before you made a decision about your child's health care, for instance. Yeah. And so we wanted to build that platform that will allow for those personal interactions in this increasingly digital age. Today, we focus enormously on how do we reach customers you know, on their cell phone with a call and a text. And I think what shocks people the most is on average across our platform, our customers have about a 30 to 35% answer rate. So you know, if email has a 3% click rate, this is 10x the engagement of email. So it's very high engagement, very high conversion once you're on the phone with a human. And so for our customers, the majority of their revenue comes in on Regal, not through their website which is also an incredible thing to think about. So instead of seeing a future world where all human touch is removed, we see this world where human touch is critical and we want to build the underlying platform that is going to enable brands to have those yeah. conversations You know, when customers want. I mean, think back to the world, you know, maybe 100 years ago where you'd walk into a, you know, an establishment that knew you and they'd say, oh, it's so nice to see you, Alex. Like, here's your table. Here's your drink. I know exactly what you want. You know, we want brands to be offering a higher quality of service so that their customers yep. are more satisfied. We want brands to be differentiating on service so their customers are satisfied. So we can identify now exactly when customers are struggling online to be reaching out to them with a branded call and a text saying, this is SoFi, this is Roman, you know, this is your, you know, school, whichever school it is you know, we're here to help you and help you walk through this. Yeah. Inspiring. And I mean, it's so recognizable what you were saying there. Like B2B, not if it wasn't, wasn't built the right way. Uh, B2C, yes, call center, not the right way. Cold calling isn't the thing as well. But it's really about this intersection of something that people want, but it's a higher value product. Where at the end, yeah. you know, before you make yeah, higher value, you want... more considered. I think the fascinating thing when I look back is I made the same mistake that a lot of people are making today, which is we believe that because retail came online in this modality where there was very little customer interaction, and actually they can't afford customer interaction because the margins are so low that every industry would work that way. And actually, like, you know, that's just it hurts businesses when they come online without having the ability to talk to their customer. And so I think. Part of what we talk about is shifting the mindset from one where digital is a solution to everything to one where you use data to make decisions on when you should be having a conversation with the customer because it's higher NPS for them and ultimately a revenue driver for the brands. So we shouldn't say unilaterally, you should talk to the customer in every motion or unilaterally, you shouldn't. We should use data to make that decision. So a lot of what our product helps people do is treat these conversations much like a digital channel and A-B test to see which interactions are driving value for the customer and for the brand. Exactly. Interesting. I mean, you already talked about my second question, like what is the opportunity to get this right, but that is already defined. Yeah, Um, I'd say at a very high level, there's somewhere around 15 or 16 million customer service contacts in our seat. So, you know, those are people who are doing customer service. There's somewhere between five and 7 million of these B2C sales seats. So not B2B, but B2C sales. And there's not a tool for those folks. And today they're either using the wrong tool. So think of it like using off-brand prescription. So you're using the wrong thing without, you know, and it's not working necessarily correctly, or they're building their own. So again, think of somebody in the back, like mixing up chemicals and trying to make a drug and use it. Neither are great situations to be in for the patient. 
So, you know, we, I think, are very proud of the fact that we work closely with brands to actually create an experience which, you know, they're proud of. So brands want to be able to engage customers in a way that's brand first and, you know, at the moment, you know, and in the channel the customer wants and with messaging that tells the customer they understand them. And so we're very proud to help brands do that. We're speaking to the converted with regards to like the aspiration that these brands have, you know, create an experience that they're proud of. Yeah. I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effects. So that's all about yeah, doing things and making an impact for your customers. Yeah, um, I remember early days, we were starting the company and I talked to a big university in the United States about their admissions program. And they yeah. were, you know, a little bit sheepish at first. They weren't telling me the whole story. And I pushed a little bit and they go, well, to tell you the truth, we're very embarrassed about some of our admissions program because our current telephony stack does not allow us to do the calls and texts that we want that we know would be better for customers. So we find ourselves in a situation where we're a well-known university, but the way we're reaching out to customers, you know, we're calling them too much. They're from a random number they don't know. They feel like we're spamming them and it's hurting our brand as a customer. So, you know, it is important to get these channels right. Well, all right. So like winding, well, you don't have to wind the clock that much back because it's 2020. What I'm always interested in is like, there's, there's all these things already out there. You find that niche, you find that unique problem that needs to be served in a specific way. So where, how do you start? How did you start product strategy-wise with, okay, this is where we're going to focus our time in, in order to create something that has defensible differentiation? Yeah, so we have a very strong opinion on this. Rebecca and I have a very strong opinion on this. We believe that you have to start with the customer. So a lot of companies, in our opinion, make the mistake of spending a long time at the beginning building product and then showing it to the customer, getting feedback and having to rebuild that product. So what we suggest to a lot of founders is once you've identified the area that you know you want to operate in, you know, spend your time doing customer interviews. And what you're looking for is not just you know, them giving you feedback, but you're looking for somebody reaching across the table saying, I will pay for that now. How do I get that product tomorrow? And what, yeah. what you do is at the beginning, you can build you know, mocks and you can build decks and say, you know, based on what we've heard, here are the challenges that you're facing. And, you know, we hear these three things a lot, you know, is that what you're facing and get them to talk about which challenges they're having, and then start talking about the value that they're sort of trying to drive towards. So in our case, the challenges were around how do we reach customers more? How do we make agents efficient? How do we have the data to know what's working, what's not in the phone sales channel, or in D2C sales in general, and then they were ultimately trying to drive more conversion, more revenue. So as we understood that better and started showing them different features, they would pull on certain things and we would then prioritize building those. And so at the beginning, we did not you know, have a huge engineering team. We couldn't build a fully featured platform, but we could build the features that we knew were going to drive incremental revenue because that's what they cared about most. And we're going to solve some of the problems and the challenges they had. And that let us launch so we raised seed in November of 2020, and we launched yep. to the first customers in December of 2020. So, you know, you can just start driving revenue immediately in that way. Let me make a small interruption here. Alex just made an excellent remark about the essence that underpins his company. Create valuable and desirable products in the leanest possible way. Products, no matter how small, that customers care about. Following this mantra got in very early predictable traction. Traction that they could build a business with independently, while at the same time having the option to leverage external funding to fuel rapid growth. It allowed them to make funding an option, not a set choice. It's a trade remarkable software companies master. They realize that they cannot please everyone, focus on the essence, master curiosity, and then build new value possibilities 
that when they show them to customers, that they will say, I'll pay for it now. How can I get that product tomorrow? You can master these traits as well. And the first step, simply read my book. I've made the electronic version available for free. Just visit theremarkableeffect.com to grab your copy and inspiration will spark in the first 10 minutes. Back to the interview. When customers you know, had a feature request, we couldn't always you know, do it. And so there would be times where we would manually have to do things for customers to support them. But I think at yeah. the beginning, you know, this is a famous YC expression. It's perfectly okay to do things that don't scale. Exactly. We learned by actually Rebecca and I doing the customer support for all of these customers at the beginning is exactly what really mattered to them and what didn't. You know, there'd be nice to have as they'd ask for, but when we'd really say, look, there's only five of us, you know, what do we really prioritize? What do we focus on for you? They'd tell us. And so I think, you know, coming back to the first point, like, you know, focus on what your customer wants. Don't focus on building a product yet. Focus on what the customer wants. I think the second thing is at the very beginning, you know, the founders have to be doing every single interaction with the customer. So I think too many people separate themselves from that. For the first year, you know, I sold every customer, you know, Rebecca was involved in every customer, you know, there was nobody else. There was no sales team. There was no marketing team. We didn't go out and hire fancy executives. It was just us. So we went from zero to 3 million in run rate without any of that. Then sort of the next phase of the company was starting to prove that we could have a sales team. And so this year we've proved we could, you know, ramp a sales team well, and that's gone very well. And we're excited by the execs there and the people doing it and the fabulous team. Yeah. And now this year in the third year, we're starting marketing. So we didn't make our first marketing hire until a month ago. So in our third year, we're now looking at marketing. Really? So I think it's a different way of thinking about the business. How many people do you have currently working for your customer, for your organization? Today, we're about 85 people. So a year ago, we were 15. So we've you know grown quite a lot in a year. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, it's also an interesting thing in itself that you only hired your first marketing person in that last phase. And it tells again a bit that you've created the motion in terms of the fact that you don't have to do marketing because it's growing likely by word of mouth, customers pulling it out of your hands. Yeah. So the, the first two channels for us really that work. So one was just to your point, word of mouth. You know, one of the my favorite calls very early days is I got an email from somebody and they said, Well, you know, I heard about your product because my significant other works at a company where she uses your product day to day. And she was so happy with it, she told me about it. And so you know when you're you're going through the family like it's successful. So yeah, at the beginning, that was you know one of the most important channels for us. And then the other one very early on actually is we started doing conferences. And what we would do is we'd buy a small booth, we'd you know put up a sign, and again, we would just talk to customers. And I think it was magical to see their eyes light up when they saw, they all knew the problems. They saw it was hard to reach customers, hard to know when to call them. They didn't want to call them too much. They wanted to be able to text them. But for so long, everyone had told them, no, we're not going to build software for you because it's not important enough. And yeah. so to have a company that actually cared about this use case and was going to build product for them, you know, they really got excited about what we were doing. And so very early on, you know, going to conferences allowed us to build a group of believers as well. Strong. And I may also like that too, that you really, like the hook is the problem rather than look at what cool features we have. Yeah, for sure. So there's definitely a lot of credibility because Rebecca and I went through this ourselves and that obviously helps. Yeah. I think, you know, you yeah. find startups where people are searching for a problem and that's much more difficult because Rebecca and I live this problem you know, we do really feel what it is that, you know, customers are going through. 
And we tell them when we work with them, and it's very honest that our goal is for them to drive more revenue. And if we can help them at Regal, great. But if our experience can just help them do anything that's going to drive more revenue, we'll help them do that. You know, our goal is for them to be successful, you know, and if we can help them, great, but it's not necessary. Cool. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On that journey, what has been the hardest nut to crack to grow adoption or to change behavior of people? Yeah, I think, you know, the majority of companies grow slower than we do. So most the sort of top decile of B2B SaaS companies take a year to get to about a million, then the next year to get to three and the next year to get to 10. So that's sort of three years to, you know, nine or 10 million. So we've done that in under two years. And so at that rate of growth, a lot more things break or you don't have as much time to learn. And so you have to rely on people sort of who've been there before and are more experienced. So I think just the rate of growth that we've experienced has made it more difficult for us. In terms of things that have broken or gone to plan, we're very lucky. I'd say the majority of what we set out to do has happened. I'd say the things that have not gone to plan there are one or two examples of like self-inflicted mistakes where we've done things wrong, but largely like the reason we are where we are today is things have gone to plan. You know, I think what will set us up for success very significantly is we we're much more careful in hiring, you know, I think than most companies are early. And so made sure we were hiring people that we felt were really aligned with our way of doing things. So really cared about the customer. We're very execution focused. We're very interested in using data to make easier decisions. We're interested yeah. in making decisions that would lead to growth. So when we found people that fit with us culturally, I think you know we jumped on the opportunity to work with them. And at this point, one of the things we're proudest of is in our application process, we have all time. So of people we've made a job offer to, we have over 90% acceptance of those job offers. And so that's very unusual to see, but I think we do a good job of identifying the people that are culturally aligned with us and getting them excited uh-huh. about what we're doing. And then obviously making them successful once they join. So that's the biggest leverage. We are not fans of building huge teams just for the sake of building teams. One of the things that I hate or I pet peeves is when you ask a founder how their company's doing and they cite the number of people they have on the team. Exactly. I understand that it's a nice approximation of what's going on, but really, you know, companies should have a smaller team so that there's less communication tax. Each person can have more opportunity. And ultimately, if there's an exit, each person will have a bigger exit. And so it's not a unilateral good to have more people. It's a unilateral good to have fewer people that are more excited about your product. So I think we also are smaller than we could be, but that has helped us enormously by reducing the friction internally and making sure that we have great people throughout. And so I'd say that you know the team that we have has been sort of the biggest help in starting to go after this and really succeed. You know They're the ones every day in and out solving very complicated problems. Strong points. I like that. I made some notes on this and I completely agree on you. I also get sort of itchy when people are starting, okay, to brag about the number of people that they've uh, Yeah. That I mean, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you a corollary of it that we try to teach when people join us and things that we, you know, Rebecca and I've learned over time being at startups. At bigger companies, you're taught that you're taught the wrong thing. You're taught that 
you know, the more people who work for you, the more important you are. The more your world is like important, the more important you are. I think that results in bad outcomes for companies. What we try to teach people is actually the most valuable people in the company are those that can make themselves completely redundant. It's a crazy idea. But really what we're saying is we want somebody who's so talented that we can give them a challenging problem. Let's say it's to you know launch a new product. They can go in, figure out what needs to be done, plan it out, start testing it, hire the team, build the product with the product and engineering team, get customers excited, and then create the process and the structure, maybe create the opportunity for other people to rise up so that they can completely remove themselves. Because now if that function can work either because of team or because of process or because of software without you, you now can go do something else. If you make yourself completely important to that process, it can't operate without you, you can't go do something else. So actually you're much more valuable to a company if you can make yourself redundant than if you make yourself necessary for the process. And once people yeah. hear that, they kind of understand and they go, wow, I, it's a completely important shift in my life. It is. Yeah, I mean, I had a couple of people on my podcast that share a similar type of focus and they do immensely well. One of the things was like, we give people a budget to create leverage, create leverage for yourself, for your team, for the organization. Here's the money, go do it. Because also with more people hiring, everything gets more difficult. Communication gets more difficult. There's more conflicts. So to stay as lean as possible yeah. is at the end the best. And at the end, it's about the impact that you can make for your customer. And that doesn't necessarily have to add up into more people. It's just be smarter about it. Very strong. I mean, so you raised November of 2020, right? And then you started to kind of launch in December 2020. What did you learn in the whole sales process? What are some takeaways or, yeah, kind of the things that really, really works for you? Yeah. Because, I mean, so, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with the fact that that curve is, it has come so quickly. Yeah. So a few things, you know, Rebecca and I come from the B2C world, not the B2B world. And so, you know, a lot of this was new to us and we leaned a lot on friends who were, you know, further ahead of us. And so that was quite helpful. I'd say on the positive, I wish somebody 10 years ago had tapped me on the shoulder and said, forget B2C businesses, you know, go work in B2B SaaS. It's a fabulous business because the revenue is very predictable, right? So you have a, a lot of insight in what's going on in the future. And so you can make better long-term plans based off of that. And because of you know the sort of you're selling software and that's your core product, you can spend a lot of time iterating on the software and making it better to improve the outcomes for people. I think a lot of B2C businesses, a lot of time is not spent on software and that makes it harder to succeed, let's say. So I think first of all, like, you know, B2B SaaS is a fabulous business. I think second thing we learned is, you know, I think there's a lack of sophistication in B2B marketing and sort of customer interaction compared to B2C. I think part of it is because in the B2C world, you operate a much larger scale. And so there's been a necessity to have much more sophisticated segmentation and tooling around that. And so I kept expecting to see a product or a strategy or whatever that would mimic what we were doing on the B2C side, but we didn't. I think PLG is starting to bring in some of the tools that were used in B2C into B2B marketing and sales. But even there, it's very rudimentary. So we're still at very small scale, but I was underwhelmed by the current tooling for even B2B because it makes it very hard for you to personalize what you're doing to each customer. So partly as a consequence of that, and partly because we like customers, you know, we didn't rely on automation. 
And I, again, would encourage people not to rely on automation in the beginning. You know, we manually write emails to people. We manually respond to them. We get on the phone with customers. You know, we don't delegate it to a system that is automatically sending out some random thing. And so, you know, I think the doing it yourself, doing it manually, you know, again, things that don't scale is enormously valuable at the beginning. And so I think that was quite helpful. And then I'd say the third thing, which I learned, I wish I could say I knew this in advance, but really it's, you know, after the fact, we realized that we had a good strategy is we have a go-to-market motion that leads to a lot of success for customers and a lot of success for us. And our go-to-market motion in many ways is similar to what somebody like a gong or an attentive use. And so what we do is we, first of all, we stand for revenue. So when we're going in, we're saying, we're going to help you drive more revenue. Second, all of us go in at a relatively low price point. So the first contract you sign with any of those three companies is pretty small. And then third, probably most importantly, there's a consumption aspect to our model. So for Gong, they're selling more seats. For Attentive, you're using more SMSs. And for Regal, obviously, you're calling more, you know, using more uh, texts and of the other features we have, like branded caller ID and spam remediation. And what that means is, Customers make, you know, can, can make the decision to use you relatively quickly. And then once they see that every dollar they spend on you results in a multiple in revenue, then they can spend another dollar and another dollar. And they're yeah. excited because they're getting a great ROI and That's it leads to a very high net dollar retention for us. And so if you think about it, what's happened is instead of coming at a high price point where the customer may not get the value, you come in at a very low price point to get more value than expected and they continue to get a multiple that's exciting to them in value. And so that go-to-market motion, if I could find five businesses that had that motion with revenue link, low initial order size, and then a consumption-based model based on the customer success, I would invest in all of them. It's a fabulous way to to build a business. Yeah, it makes total sense. And it's I actually wrote something this morning about adoption and diffusion. And those things really work here together as well. First of all, it's the adoption part, but then it starts to diffuse in the organization itself. And of course, then also through word of mouth, they start to spread it with their peers. Yeah. yeah. And every day they see, yeah, that that is working. And that's like by doing more, yeah, it just results in more. Yeah. And it's funny we're, we're, like inside of organizations also, I didn't appreciate this at the beginning, but you know, we are in, I think we were talking about a bit, like we are in a critical part of the infrastructure for the customers we work with. The large majority of their revenue comes in over us, not through their website. So we are the critical infrastructure. And, you know, we obviously are working with a business buyer who has a ROI in mind, and we're working with agents that are using the product every day and with their managers. We're also working with the marketing, you know, CRM team that has to align their marketing with what we're doing. And they love us because all of a sudden they know what the sales team is doing. And it's not, you know, it used to be, let's throw leads over the fence and we have no idea what happens. And now we allow them to know. And we work with the data team and they all of a sudden go, oh my goodness, you know, you're the first contact center software that allows us to see all the reporting and get it into our Snowflake instance and into Looker so we can mix it with our other data and that treats data like it is, you know, something that should be shared, not locked in the product. So the data team Uh gets excited. So you may not, at the beginning, I didn't appreciate how many different people could get excited about the type of software we're building, but it's not just the business user, it's these other folks as well. I think one of the things that we're starting to work on now is how to bring more of the collaboration between those teams into the product. One of the things we saw when we were using a lot of the email marketing software is that a lot of the collaboration around email marketing strategy would happen outside the product in an Excel sheet, in a Google document, even in some kind of WYSIWYG type you know, diagram or 
And then you'd hand it to somebody and they'd build the campaign in the actual, you know, in iterable, in Braze, in customer.io or responses or exact target, what, you know, it's now called like a Salesforce marketing cloud. What we'd like to do is make it so that those different teams that are interacting on how should we reach the customer, what's the next test we're going to do, we want them interacting in Regal so that they don't have to have a separate product that they're putting comments in and then put it in Regal. And so yeah, slowly exactly. towards that vision. Cool. Yeah, that's I mean, it's interesting how you start really small on one particular use case and how it then starts to build out in the most relevant way for customers. Yeah. We talked already about the hardest nut to crack. With regards to kind of your growth aspirations in the business, what has been, how do you say that? What do you believe has held you back the most? What well, how does it kind of get it around? Get it well, so start with a few things in background. So first, I think Rebecca and I, it's what I said at the beginning of our builders. We just like being here. This is fun for us. So like, that's important. I think second, when we sort of started talking about what we wanted the goals for the business to be, there were two that really you know were important to us. First is... We wanted to build something that was a category defining business, you know, something that really would, you know, mean a lot to our customers, you know, be exciting to work for. We hope we get that opportunity as we continue to build the product. And so that was one big piece. The other big piece is we wanted to build wealth for early employees. So it was important to us that employees, every single employee had ownership in the business. And then we educated them about where the business was and what we needed to do to make sure that they had a good outcome with the business. Again, Rebecca and I had been through a few different startups, and it was important to us that everybody understood how that part of the business worked as well, because we wanted them to be owners. In terms of like what's hard to get to that stuff, I'd say on the first piece around building a big standalone company, I think of two things. So one is, you know, you need to break through. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of very boring B2B marketing. You know, more revenue, less cost, many integrations, more revenue, less cost, many integrations. I think, you know, it's pretty standard. There are some companies like a gong or an attentive, to use those examples again, that have done a fabulous job of helping people understand why it's so important and getting people to be, you know, missionaries about their cause. So attentive is not the first SMS marketing company. You know, gong is not the first call recording company. You might even argue if I'm going to like whisper that, you know, their products aren't that different from some of the ones that came before. But one of the big differentiations was how they positioned it and how they got people excited about it. And so I think we understood from the beginning that we had to be bold and irreverent and make sure that we stood out in this, you know, marketplace as a company that people were excited about. And so one of the things gong talks about in product marketing is making sure you're you're sort of speaking in the right way and saying, you know, you what Gong does is says you as the customer, you think you know what's going on in your sales cycle, but you don't. And that's a big, you know, that's unusual for companies to be so abrasive. And they'll say, but you don't. And here's Gong and it's going to help you understand what's going on in the process. And so they're intentionally abrasive in that moment and a little bit divisive on some topics to make sure that people remember them or, and are and sort of they're, yeah. they're capturing the right customers, right? So people who believe that they know what's happening in the sales process, they're not the right customer for Gong. But people who go, you know what? You're right. I don't know what's going on in the sales process. Well, now they're excited about this company that's going to have this mission to help them understand better. And so the marketing is very important. We're very early on that sort of trajectory. I hope that we're we're over time able to really break out in that. So that's one sort of hard nut to crack in that. I'd say the other one in the sort of making a big standalone company is you have to get to 100 million in run rate approximately. Anything smaller than that, realistically, you're not a standalone company. You're going to have to sell. You're going to have to sell to private equity or a strategic buyer or something else. So you don't get to stay a standalone company. 
So if you can get over 100 million, you can be a larger standalone company, control your destiny. You don't have to go public. You can stay private. And there's ways of creating liquidity in, in that model where you're private, but you have more control. So I think it is important if you want to do what we're doing to think, how do we get to 100 million, 200 million in run rate and you know do that relatively quickly over the next five years? So that's part of why we invest the way we do in our team, in marketing and sales now to get to a place where you know realistically we can be at 100 or 200 million in run rate. So that's the challenges, let's say, on that first one. On the second one around creating wealth, I think it's you know it's two things that drive it. One is take as little dilution as possible. You know, you know, so yep. don't give away a lot of equity to investors. And two, you know, again, have your revenue be as high as possible. You know, if you have low dilution and high revenue, you're going to ultimately have a good outcome for the people who are shareholders internally. So when I see, you know, companies announcing that they raise money, my first thought is, how could you give away 20% of your business? That's not something to be proud of. So I think when I, I sort of was catching up with one of my friends about this, who's an investor, he, you know, positions it as perhaps something that was created when YC, Y Combinator started really encouraging people to raise money. So when YC glorified the fundraising process, that became more glorified across the industry. I don't know that I'd put it entirely there, but I think it is an interesting place to start. You know, we shouldn't be glorifying raising money. We should be looking at raising money as a failure in some situations, not a success, right? As a business, we want to be able to be able to run the core business profitably and then use funds that we're raising, whether it's debt or equity, to make investments that we think are going to be good for the business. And so I think being more regimented on that leads to, you know, a situation where you don't need to raise as much money. You're not looking at fundraising as success. You're looking at fundraising as something to do to invest in the business and drive good outcomes. And so that's an important shift, I think, mentally for people. And then internally, you know, you have to really pinch pennies. And so, you know, what kills businesses is not, you know, bad products or whatever, all those things. What kills businesses is recurring expenses. And that's a weird thing to say, but it is important to remember recurring expenses, right? You know, SaaS software that you've bought that you can't get out of, right? That is going to stop you from getting out of means that you can't lower your costs. So be very careful as a new business about signing up for contracts. Ask them if they can help you because you're a new business. Find ways of doing it in a more flexible way so that you're not in a situation where you've raised your costs so much that you can't go and do the thing you need to do that's right for your business. So think very hard about everything that's a recurring expense and don't do it. I still look at every expense across the business. And you know, people know, they know that I'll look at it and I'll email them and say, what is this expense and what is happening here? It's not to say I don't trust people, but it's to say we have to be very vigilant on that. You know, I was talking to a candidate for a finance role internally, and he was telling me that he became famous at his last company because he was giving the CEO a hard time for buying a $50 sweatshirt for the company for everybody to have. And that's what you want. You want people who are going, do you really need that $50 sweatshirt or could we have bought a $20 yeah. t-shirt, right? You want people that uh, exactly. think that way. Yeah. yeah. You know, I think these, I mean, I, normally I ask like from all the lessons that you learned, do you have a do and a don't to share? And I think you shared already 10 in the last 10 minutes. So yeah. I won't ask that question. One final one, since I wrote my book, The Remarkable Effect, from your experience, what do you believe is a trait or what do you how do you say that? Keep pushing on the organization to not only become an organization that people talk about, but actually keep being that organization that people talk about. Yeah, I think, you know, it'd be hard for me to choose one. You know, we sort of have created these values internally that we think are going to help us as a company be successful at this stage. 
So I think there are those sort of, you know, it's, you know, being very customer focused, using data to make better decisions, acting with urgency, you know, acting on the things that are going to lead to growth, you know, making sure that you're enjoying the journey. So those are our values that we think are important. If I were going to pick one thing, just as an example, I would say one common challenge early days and that we talk about with folks internally is people sort of accept constraints. When you're an early stage company, there are going to be all kinds of perceived constraints. We don't have enough money to do this. We don't have enough people to do this. You know, it's not possible to do this thing that, you know, no one's done before. No customer will buy this contract. Nobody will talk to me because I'm not, you know, important enough or big enough. So there's a lot of perceived constraints. I think understanding how you, you know, turn those around and create opportunity out of that is important. So at the last All Hands, we did an exercise. Yeah, that is not, we didn't come up with, it comes from a business school where, we split the team into different groups and gave them each $5 and said, you each have as a group two hours to create as much money out as you can as a group, and then come back and present for two minutes on how to do it. And so the punchline is that the teams that see the $5 as the constraint, meaning they're trying to use the $5 to buy something and then resell it, don't do very well because it's hard to turn $5 into more that quickly. Teams that forget the $5 and they think about, well, how else can we make money in any way do pretty well. And the teams that do best even go beyond the constraint and say, well, actually, perhaps, you know, there was an example in one of these business schools where somebody sold the two minutes they had at the end to a company who wanted to advertise the business school students and they made $1,000 for that two minute speaking slot. So even they didn't think the two hours was the constraint. So don't let constraints be constraining. I think it's an important concept early days for people to understand. I think classically an example of this is, you know, Americans understand they go to a supermarket and there's a price on something and they pay the price, you know? And so when somebody says, here's, you know, something to buy, Americans go, okay, you set the price, I pay the price. If you go to, I'll pick on Turkey, which is a fabulous example. If you go to the, you know, open air markets in Turkey, and there's a price on something, if you pay that price, somebody will be offended that you didn't negotiate. <laughs> it's actually inherent in the culture to negotiate. And so I think helping yeah. people understand that everything is negotiable and you know they should understand that there's a way for both parties to get what they want out of it. I'm not saying it's a zero-sum yeah. game. Perhaps you care more about a lower price and they care more about having a review or a referenceable customer. So it's a fair trade you know, between the two. So it's not a zero-sum game in those things, but I think sure. that sort of concept around you know, don't think of constraints too much is a key one early days. Really, really good advice. Thanks for that. Well, Alex, kind of the time flew by. Thanks, well, for being so open about the journey that you're on. I love the niche that you picked and the problem that you're solving there and the success that you're creating. Thanks for well, sharing all the wisdom. Yeah, thank you for having me on. It was exciting to chat. And this ends my conversation with Alex. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Alex Levine, co-founder and CEO of Regal. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, Share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. 
Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book, or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode. That's what ransomware is all about. It's psychological pressure. Ransomware. When your computer's hacked into and your data held ransom. Attacks are on the rise and Russian gangs are making billions of dollars. The moment I got that message, I knew our greatest fears that we ever have are starting to come true. The post-Cold War era is over. Dot com, the hacking. A new season from Crowd Network with me, Katie Puckrick. Just search for dot com, that's D-O-T-C-O-M, and subscribe.